Hello and welcome to the Motor Mouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We've partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, a cause that means a great deal to me personally. Thanks to our partnership, we've been able to create a short series of special podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who've been affected by these devastating diagnoses. You can hear my story as well as the Williams Formula One team's planning director, Richard Jones, now with more to come. Also, bookings are now open for the Motormouth Charity Karting event with places for the day now on general sale. Enter your team of four to an endurance race and compete with and against a host of motorsport celebs or pro drivers who will be drawn at random to be on your team. Gates open at 12.30 and close at 6pm. For all the information and to see who you could be up against, head to motormouthkartrace.com. We'll see you there and together we can help every single person affected by a brain tumour. Without you and our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to carry on doing what we do, which is bringing you the biggest names in motorsport and delving into their lives and opinions. This season, we couldn't be happier to be teaming up with Devante What drives you? The pursuit of excellence never ends. You can now enjoy the thrill of the chase with Pro Tour Sport from Devante Tires. Featuring the latest innovations in tyre technology, including intelligent water management and precision-engineered interlocking tread blocks, Pro Tour Sport has been designed from the ground up to enhance every aspect of your driving experience. Independently tested at Europe's toughest proving grounds by the most respected names in tyre research, Pro Tour Sport is at one with the driver. Ask your Devante dealer about Pro Tour Sport today. Discover Pro Tour Sports at devante-tires.com/slash Pro Tour Sports. Hello, everyone. Tim Sylvie here. Now, today's guest hails originally from Exeter in Devon. And did you know, Harry Benjamin, that Exeter, cue the creepy music, was the last place where women were trialed and executed for witchcraft? Yes, that's right. For more than a hundred years, Exeter was England's epicentre for witchcraft. Temperance Lloyd, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles were the so-called Biddeford witches. They were hung at Exeter prison just as a law was passed in the 17th century, ending the activity of witch hunting. What do you make of that, my friend? Wow. What? You, I, I really want to know what your search history is like because <laughs> <laughs> with every single show, there's some weird fact you pluck out from somewhere. Uh, well, that's actually, that is, I'm quite fascinated by that. Well, I did a bit of a, what was it, school that you study? A bit, a bit of the crucible. That's all about uh, witch, witch hunting and all that. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I thought it was more of an American thing, but clearly uh, much closer to home. Yeah, I tell we banned it, quite rightly. You know, mm. There's no need to, <laughs> to hunt and hang witches, not in this day and age. Um, so uh, what's new? Uh, wh- well, i tell you something that's new that we can talk about now. And by the time this goes out in a few weeks' time, we can certainly talk about it. Um, mm. You made your commentary <laughs> debut. Yes, I have. I'm a commentator now, <laughs> which a, is weird. You're a commentator. <laughs> T- tell us just quickly, how was it? This is Porsche Super Cup in in Monaco. So we're a bit behind the times here because bearing in mind this is being... So, yeah, we might even be Austria by now. Yeah, no, so I joined the F1 guys to do the Porsche uh, Super Cup. So first ever commentary, really. Um, So (laughs) throwing it at the deep end a little bit. And track where there could be no bloody overtakings. That's always fun. Uh, And then there was a 30-minute red flag when the race (laughs) is day and it's long in itself. So (laughs) so that was fun. But you know what? I loved it. It was great. Shouting at fast cars as your job is is not like the worst thing in the world. So (laughs) I thought you did. I I made a few mistakes already because then you have the team PR people e- like emailing you, be like, actually, he was actually uh, this in 2018, oh, not 2019. Be quiet. 
So, uh, so I had to uh, sort of apologise and be a bit sheepish on that. But hey, for the first one, I think I just about got away with it. I so think, on uh, to the next. I think you did really well. Well, well oh, done, you. you. Uh, f- future um, crofty, but, but better. Um, <laughs> right, should we introduce today's guest? Oh, I think so. We've made him wait long enough. So today we're joined by Harry Tingle, who burst onto the scene in 2013 in European F3 before winning in LMP2 at Le Mans. He's gone on to be a serial winner and champion in GT and Le Mans prototype racing. He's raced for the likes of US Giants, Chip Ganassi, Fortec, legendary British outfit, Carlin, Aston Martin, and many more. It's our pleasure to have him here. Harry Tingle, welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. Thanks, guys. I mean, less about me. Those facts about Exeter are insane. Yeah. I've never heard of those before. Oh, come on. You, mu- you must know that Exeter is... Honestly, stop this in the hometown. It's, 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 it's famous for it. There's, I, I was started reading up about Exeter and witches, and it's, it's, it goes back a long way. It's literally the epicentre. It's, it's nuts. <laughs> well, Mate, it's yeah. fascinating, but I genuinely have never heard of it. So, <laughs> you know, you... Every day is a school day, I guess. Well, next time you're back there, you've got something to uh, talk about around the dinner table. Well, where are you? Where are you at the moment? Where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm in I'm in London, southwest London. Yeah, sort of moved up here, um, 2015 time. Um, I guess as the race has sort of got busier and busier, and you know, you're just flying off every week, you know, up and down the A303 to Heathrow just got a little bit too much. So it's uh, definitely a lot more convenient, but uh, still trying to get back to Exeter as much as I can. Well, I was going to say, when you're down in Exeter, are you a keen surfer? Are you hitting the uh, the waves, if that's even a thing? <laughs> um, I mean, I have done it. Yeah, I have. I have done it. Obviously, I would say it's probably more of a body build, uh, body. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, could you actually stand up? <laughs> yeah, no, I have. I, 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 yeah, it's. I mean, it's a bit cold for me. I, I'm. I'm not. I haven't got the highest body fat percentage, so I do get a bit cold even with a uh, even with a wetsuit on. To be honest, but no, I have. I have done it a little bit. Um, I remember we were actually racing in uh, Australia at the start of last year and afterwards we went to Byron Bay for a few days and I was with Ben Barnaker, Jack Manchester. I said, oh, I've booked us a surfing lesson. We'll, uh, we'll go surfing. It was amazing because, you know, you're just in the board shorts and it's like, oh, this is more like it. And then I had a message from on Instagram from one of my, mate, one of my mates from Exeter who is actually a, a medic out there. We went for a drink that night and I was like, oh, mate, you know, we used to be surfing in you know, Cornwall or Devon and now, now surfing is... Uh, Byron Bay, this is insane. And then he got a picture out and showed me uh, showed me someone's leg after the shark about half bitten it off oh. like the previous week on that beach. And I was like, right, take me back to take me back to yeah. Never, never again. I'm yeah. Never, <laughs> never surfing in Australia ever again in my life. But <laughs> no, we do it done it a little bit, but not not I wouldn't say I was uh, the next Kelly Slater or anything like that. You, you do <laughs> get the odd uh, great white off the coast of Cornwall that I read about it in the news not that long ago that they, they, had, they had a couple of great whites. Is this where you get your facts out. from as well? That yeah, same website. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the same. <laughs> Wait, you must have like Southwest News like sort of direct to the phone or something. Yeah, it's mate, amazing. We're, we're professionals here. You know, we, we do our research on our guests and their, and their hometowns. What, what I do want to know though is we're, we are... Uh, I think all of us, after this horrible 12, 18 months, are desperate to go away on holiday somewhere. Devon and Exeter, well, Devon and Cornwall, rather, lovely place to to go. Where is, where's the best place to go in the southwest if you want a bit of sunshine, a nice beach, and just chill out for a while? Yeah, I mean, you can't really go wrong with Devon and Cornwall, can you? I mean, obviously, like, lucky to be brought up around there. I'm from a little town called Sidmouth, which is on the sort of... Um, uh, south coast and um, that's really nice I mean I don't know if you're into folk music but they have a oh, folk yeah. festival there for like 10, 10 days every Absolutely. every August which is uh, it's, it, it attracts an interesting clientele shall we say but uh, 
Um, it's but yeah, it's all super nice down there. I mean, like Woolacombe, places like that up in the, on, up in North Devon are great. Uh, like you say, into surfing, and obviously Cornwall's amazing. Uh, you know, places like Padstow, Falmouth, and uh, places like that. Um, I actually used to go down a lot to a, a little village called St Moors, which is just sort of the other side of Falmouth. Believe it or not, actually, um, Dave Richards uh, owns a hotel and a couple of restaurants down there. I remember when he was in charge of uh, BAR. Uh, and I was in karting. I sort of walked around and sort of <laughs> try and catch his eye a little bit. And it was funny that you know, obviously, how many years later, you know, I was racing for, for Pro Driver Pro the morning yeah. in Aston Martin. So it's, it's funny how that story, you know, how that sort of all came turned around and just being random in this little little village in in, uh, yeah. in Cornwall. But yes, yeah, St Moors is lovely as well. Well, fun, uh, all, fun all fact uh, about Dave Richards. So I, I, when I lived in Abu Dhabi, I was working at Yas Marina Circuit and um, I, I randomly moved into a flat with his son, Jamie, um, Jamie Richards. And we had a, a lovely okay. place in Abu Dhabi when uh, Jamie was working at the racetrack as well. And then I, I sort of felt like, you know, I was in with the family then because, you know, I was like living with his son, you know, he, he must know who I am. And I saw saw Dave Richards at the Autosport Awards a couple of years later, went up to him. I was like, oh, Dave, how's it going? And he, he's friends with my auntie and uncle as well. I was like, you're friends with my auntie and uncle. I used to live with your son. He basically, he, he might as well have said, just get lost. Like, who, how, how dare you approach me? I was like, but but I kind of sort of no, and I just walked away, my tail between my legs, being blanked um, by Dave Richards. But there we go. Yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah. Listen, um, let's let's get back to racing. When when did this? Uh, when did the motorsport bug hit you? When when did you first think I'm going to get in a cart and and see how we get on? Well, I used to watch F1 with my dad when I was like maybe three or four years old, which I guess is probably not the most normal like program to be watching as a three or four year old, but yeah, I was just really into it. It's sort of got a you know, slight memory of, of, of watching F1 and always been interested in it. And then um, when I was seven years old, we went on holiday to um, Sardinia and opposite the hotel was a kart track. And, uh, you know, I was a big Mika Hakkinen fan at the time. You had the t-shirt, everything like that, you know, would leave lunch early to go back and watch qualifying on the TV and everything. So, um, yeah, I just started going to the kart track every day, basically, and uh, yeah, absolutely loving it. And came back and um, started, you know, just doing some research on my own. I think it was like just when Google had just started, I guess, and uh, showing your age, you know, sort of typing in UK cars and everything like that, sort of working out where the nearest tracks are. And then for my eighth birthday, I got a little sixty cc uh, go kart from my parents, and uh, that's where it all started. To be honest, and you know, for the first two or three years, it was sort of just you know like once a month. Uh, you know, dad and I, um, you know, dad on mechanics, me and the driver, neither of us really knew what we were doing, to be honest, but it was just a bit of a laugh. Um, it wasn't particularly serious. And yeah, just, it, you know, just kind of grew from there, really. And it's amazing how, how fast it can sort of, you know, go from being a little hobby to all of a sudden you're racing all over the world in karting and, uh, you know, trying to make a, make a career out of it. Well, yeah. When did that moment come where it went from you know being a bit of a hobby to okay, this I want to make this my career now? Was there a moment where you just sort of had a bit of a realization, or was it progressive? Yeah. Um, well, when I was about ten, that dad and I were just doing uh, just just doing that once 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 a month, and then we met a, a guy called Harry Soden who um, had a had a race team at the time in karting, just one one or two drivers, and he basically sort of took over running running me basically and we sort of sort of moved up the ranks with him and then when I was 11 I 
won uh, round of um, British Championships, basically under 16 British Championships uh, in Junior TKM. And I think it was at that point, it's like, okay, maybe there's more to this than just like a little bit of, you know, a bit, bit of fun. And and so with Harry, he's, he then, you know, took me into into Europe. I was racing sort of Jickering, KF2, wherever Europe, with um, Dino Chiesa's team, uh, who, you know, who ran Hamilton and Rosberg and everyone like that. So that was, um, you know, that was obviously a great experience. And then um, from there, I got the opportunity to go into cars. You know, I did the former BMW scholarship, which went really well. And it's kind of, at this point, I was like 16 and it's kind of like, okay, do I sort of continue a school and try and make the, you know, make them both work or do I go flat out down the racing route and, you know, see where we are when I'm sort of 21, 22. And if it's not worked out, sort of go back and try and do the, do the education after. So I don't think you can do both properly. And, uh, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how, how, how it works. And, that, and I stayed with, with Harry all the way through to, to sports cars, to be honest. And now he's obviously doing fantastically well with drivers like George Russell, and yeah. Dan Tickton and, you know he's a you know he's he's really grown as well. So we kind of we kind of learnt the ropes together a little bit uh, in in the car world. Obviously, Harry's super influential in karting and knew everyone in karting, and then he sort of came with me to cars. And I think at the time, everyone was kind of like, "Oh, why have you got this guy sort of following you around everywhere?" But I think it was actually really useful. And I think when you look now, you know, the entourages are quite impressive. You know, yeah. you've got the physio and the manager and all the rest of them. So. Uh, so was, was he? Was he would you classify him um, as as essentially your 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 manager? In a, to to a degree, I mean, it, we've spoken to some guys who have made their way up through the ranks with with no management and no support at all, and and have really regretted it and found life challenging and have learned things the hard way, really, because they've not had anyone to tell them otherwise. Was, was he guiding you through the sport at that stage? Yeah, he was certainly in karting fully, and then in. Um... In cars, when I when I went to cars, uh, actually through a mutual friend, Joe, uh, a guy called Joe Wheeler, um, uh, Harry uh, and Joe introduced me to Alan McNish, and Alan kind of took on the role of sort of at the time more sort of like men- mentoring and working with Harry a little bit on the management side. But I think there was back in those days, you know, in Formula Formula Renault, Formula Three, of course, you you know you you want to be with the best team and get the best deal. But in terms of actually like management there's not loads to it. It's more sort of mentorship and sort of, you know, Harry, Harry would, you know, be sort of making sure I'm, you know, in the right frame of mind and, you know, doing all, you know, organizing the training and sports psychology, anything like this. So, yeah, I guess, I guess it was more sort of management. And then Alan was sort of mentoring in the background, be the one who maybe come to a few races and be like, you should do this different or, you know, start doing this, saying this in your reports or, you know, trying to basically just guide me using his experience obviously still racing top line sports cars at the time and then when i went to sports cars harry sort of was then at that point kind of had a, you know five or six other other drivers and was and was was bringing them through and it was kind of a natural point where you know alan knew everyone in sports cars um so kind of that's kind of came to like a natural conclusion we're still very good friends still speak to him all the time and like i say obviously uh he's um absolutely smashing it now with infinity sports management that he runs so um so yeah i mean it was it was huge for me and uh for sure um having the right people behind you and the, and, and the right people guiding you is absolutely crucial so i, I feel like i i was very lucky and done well um with harry and, and alan sort of managing me all the way through from literally 10 years old basically what are those 
main challenges? Because, I mean, we talk to, obviously, a lot of racing drivers. And, and the biggest challenge, of course, when you're a young racing driver making your way up through the ranks is predominantly probably financials as well, trying sure. to make sure you've got the package in place and you've got the deal for the following year. But if I take that away... What are the, the the recurrent challenges? You know, is it is it all mentally, or is it also you know having to be constantly training? You know, what what for you was though was that big challenge? And, and do you think you know that that is still around today for for young races coming up, or has it changed in the, this modern day as well? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, the financial side is huge, and, and I think obviously as a young driver, the more you can focus on the driving and the training and everything else, the, the you know the athletic side of it. The and, and at least you have to worry about the business side, um, the better. So if you have people who can sort of take that pressure off, that's great. In terms of the actual, yeah, well, how they can help. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're young, you know, you're 16, 17, you're away from home for the first time, keeping you on a little bit on the straight and narrow, keeping you in check is, is definitely definitely helpful. I mean, I think the main thing is is opening doors and the contacts and you know those getting those those one test where you go and prove yourself or the one simulator sort of evaluation. Uh, a lot of the time, you might have 10 people with similar CVs and, and it then comes down to like contacts yeah. and, uh, you know, people just being able to open the door slightly so you'd be able to drop a shoulder and sort of barge your way through it kind of thing. So, um, but of course as well, you know, having someone who's been there, done it, got the T-shirt, won them one outright, won every big, you know, endurance race, been in Formula 1 like Alan, he can sort of see from a, you know, what, what I could do better and, and what I could do worse. And, you know, having worked with a few younger drivers myself a little bit over the last few years, it's, it's easy to spot, but at the time when you're 16, 17, it may, may not all, always be obvious to you. So having that little bit of guidance is great and just give you that extra 1% that you might need over the competition. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's obviously, you know, outside of the management, there are other things that may help a young driver through their career. And you were invited to join the BRDC Rising Stars program in 2010 and then chosen by the Motorsports Association to take part in its driver development program. How important are those kind of achievements and and, um, and support networks to the to the process or are they more of a, just a badge on a on a shirt? You know, you see a, there's a lot of rising stars from BRDC. Not all of them make the grade and make their way through. It, it does it have value, or has it lost a bit of that? Um, look, you know, let's get it right. It, when when you're youngster coming through, the most important uh, way of supporting someone is is financially, and of course. Um, you know, it's very difficult to do. It's very expensive and it's only sort of getting exponentially more expensive. So, you know, the MSA, the BRDC, they can't physically do that with, with funding. So the next best thing is to help with, with support. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think they were useful. Um, and I think if you, if I didn't have an Allen, it would be even, you know, even more so, but regardless, I think it was, it, it, it was, it was very good. Of, of course, there's like a status of it, that, you know, attached to it and uh, having that having that logo having that badge you know just felt you felt like you gave you a sort of a little bit of a boost over over the opposition but they had some very very good uh attributes to to the programs and you know with the bidc they obviously that their, their contact pool is huge so we had like a load of load of talks with you know industry experts i remember we had a, had a sort of a Q and A with Patrick Head when he was still very much involved with Williams F one, and it's just it's like money can't buy opportunities. And on the MSA Team UK, there was there was probably a bit more funding involved with that, and that that was brilliant. You know, run by David Brabham, Fiona Miller, and uh, we used to do. You know, we we had 
a load of um, training up at Porsche Human Performance, which was great, you know, sort of two or three times a year fitness tests or see where we're at. Um, and we would go around to all the different like component manufacturers. So we went to like Avon Tires, we went to, to Multimatic, uh, we went to um, Hewland um, gearboxes and, and learn about the components of the car. And you don't realize at the time, but you're also meeting again, very influential people in, in the industry. And, you know, when I was at Multimatic, I met Larry Holt and time I just thought, oh, you know, he's a very eccentric guy who loves dampers, but little don't know in a few years time, he would be my boss, you know? So that was cool. I, and we had some really amazing experiences as well. Um, I remember we, uh, we did this, um, Rabs organized this 24 hour military toughness um, test with the Marines. Right. And, uh, we went with, it was in Surrey somewhere in, uh, on the MOD land and we went down there and it was kind of like, well, you know, who's going to drop out first, you know, 24 hours. And it was like, you know, myself, Alexander Sims, James Collado, Will Buller, Jack Harvey, and a few rally drivers as well. There's about 12 of us in total. And uh, anyway, we we did this 24 hours, didn't sleep. You know, we were sort of getting beasted, skinning rabbits and <laughs> doing all, all, all those other stuff. And uh, and uh, at the end, anyway, everyone survived uh, in terms of didn't, didn't drop out. And at the end of it, uh, they sort of asked us for some feedback. And they're like, what would your feedback be? And we were kind of, like I said, we had all this like, sort of banter between us before. And we were sort of like, well... To be honest, making it a bit harder would be would be better because uh, you know no one dropped out. Big mistake. Because <laughs> uh, six months later we went back for a forty-eight hour military toughness uh, thing, and um, it was just carnage. So they <laughs> they gave you this kit list to bring, and if you didn't follow it to the absolute letter of the law, you know it was a forty-five minute beast in session. And so like I remember the guy was shouting at me. Like, They're forty-five minutes into the forty-eight hour. Uh, he was shouting at me, and I couldn't. He was like, in my face, and I couldn't see him because I had the blacks in between my eye because I was just so exhausted. And we did this like ten-hour um, hike, and we're doing all this anyway. By the by, the second day, everyone was dropping my flies, and it was uh, by the end, it was just myself and uh, Jack Harvey and Will Buller. And we and the final thing they did was uh, we basically made this like trip wire across the road. And it was going. It's like a, a mock ambush. We went trip wire across the road, and then either side uh, was like a wire. And they, they were attached like party poppers. And he basically said, "When you hear the trip wire go, you basically pull either side. We have these like sort of mines that you pull and creates like this concoction of chaos. And then we we had these uh, sort of M sixteen machine gun BB guns, right? And he said, what? so then you jump up, you jump up from behind the." Uh, behind the bank and just you know you pulled the pulled the mine it's all kicking off and then you just you know you just shoot everyone that's still alive basically <laughs> this is what happened in real life <laughs> so we set it all up so jack's in the middle i'm at one end we'll both at the other end of this of this wire across the road and we've got this basically this wire wrapped around our finger and he said right just stay there and when you hear it go just pull it but can't move otherwise you will you'll trip this uh bomb this fake bomb and they just left us there for three hours oh in the rain and we'd been up for we'd been up at this point for like 40 hours and i i remember being there and it's just it's just a it's just a uh, you know mental toughness thing. uh i remember being there gripping this gun so tiny i was like when that trip wire goes off i'm gonna no mercy point blank with this dv gun just absolutely annihilate these people and uh but yeah and, and so we did all these amazing experiences and stuff like that and like Wow. sometimes you have to ask yourself like 
What am I doing? Does that <laughs> does that make yeah? Does that make me a quicker racing driver? Um, I don't. I, the, the honest answer is I'm not sure. But I think I, I, I totally get why they uh, why they um, you know put on the uh, on these you know, different activities within the program. And you know that one was a mental toughness thing. You know, obviously the the educational side was to help improve our feedback. The fitness side was to help us be, be better in the car. But um, ultimately, of course, it would be great if they could you know, these schemes could, could fund you to do extra testing or something yeah, like that. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not the case. I think they did a very, very good job with, with the pool of, of money that they had. Yeah. So I think it was, it was, it was great. And, and for me personally as well, being one of the younger guys on that program at the time, being able to see what Alexander Sims does, what James Collado does, uh, you know, all, all these older guys, two or three years older, you know, what, what sort of, how, how quick they can run 5k, how fit they are, all, how, how much knowledge they have on setup and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's huge for, for a younger driver. And so, um, so yeah, it was great. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Isn't it? I, I sometimes think with that sort of stuff, like there's, there's a bunch of, bunch of old boys in a, in a, in a boardroom thinking, right, what should we do next? I've got an idea. Let's put it through like an SAS training program. That'll, that'll be good for them. Let's, yeah, that's good idea. Let's do that. Like with no real thought behind it, just like this completely random thing, you know, basically killing some 16 year old boys. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. But I think, um, I think having Brabs running that and obviously, you know, the, the, you know David Brabham, you know, obviously, you know, hugely successful himself. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think, you know, there's method to the madness. I'm sure there but, was. Uh, of course, like, yeah, I, get, I, I still have it now. I sort of wake up and, you know, and think like, how can, what can I do today to be a quicker racing driver? I don't know necessarily whether, you know. I, I think you need another 48 hour SS yeah. uh, train. I think it's about time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, no, I think there was, I think it was, it, it, it was really good. It was really good fun. Uh, and like I say, I mean, it just, it helps with the, sponsorship proposal and everything like that when you're part of the uk you know elite mm-hmm. program and everything like that so that's good yeah wow that is uh that uh, you, i bet you didn't think we we're talking about no no uh that that's we always talk, it's always the you know the the regular stuff that you hear about from racing drivers so it's great to hear those little bits that you just never hear about like the re- the proper like backstage stuff of yeah. uh yeah on the road to being a racing driver mental yeah. <laughs> learning how to do a, a good ambush yeah, exactly great. you never know when you might need to whack that out when you're going around yes, spark. Um, <laughs> back to uh, back to what it's helping you with though in terms of the actual uh, the four sure. racing uh, so if we fast forward a little bit to uh, British F3 now with uh, Fortec um, you had some great moments in that as well and I suppose making your way up into the ladder in British F3 must have been quite a boost for you as well is there anything that particularly stands out for you at that, at that point in time as you're making your way up there yeah I, yeah, I had um, a good year the previous year in, in, in British Formula Renault and, uh, and then moved up to, to F3 of Fortec initially and then Carlin in, in uh, 2012 and um, Obviously, I think F3 is like the University of Motorsport, yeah. they call it. So I think that's really where you sort of, you, you make yourself or break yourself, I think, in terms of having a career. And I, and I think, uh, you know, I learned huge amount uh, during those those, those seasons. Uh, I think especially 2012 with um, with Carlin, you know, one of four or five races. My engineer, Stefan de Groot, who he sort of taken Lando all the way through to F1 and stuff like that, really sort of, you know, pinned down and really taught me actually like the physics of driving and why a certain situation is quick. But of course, like racing against 
there are people like Kevin Magnuson, Felipe Nasso, you know, who will be going on to race against in, in IMSA later on. Obviously, they, those two guys went to F1 as well. The level was super high. And I think uh, it was, yeah, for sure, um, yeah, very, very tough time, you know, super hard competition. But I think that really, I really got the most out of myself. And I think there was definitely a huge focus on the actual driving technique. And, you know, you had data and video sort of coming out your ears basically the whole time. And there's there a huge, you know, it, was, it basically like, you could learn as much as, as as you wanted to. It was all available, so um, that was a uh, yeah, very very um, yeah, good learning time for myself and my career. And I, I still think back to those years now in terms of when I'm driving and what I learned, and you know how I can sort of you know, keep pushing myself forward, basically. Yeah, it's a real proving ground, isn't it, British F3? And- a quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, Devante Tyres. Actually, I'm not going to say anything. I'll leave it to six-time Olympic cycling champion and racing driver, Sir Chris Hoy. Whether in my cycling or motorsport career, I'm always looking for that winning edge. The difference between ordinary and extraordinary. I'm Chris Hoy, and I choose Pro Tura Sport, the new ultra-high-performance tyre from Devante. We talked to quite a lot of young drivers on this on this podcast, and and many of them are just about to make the step up to um, to British F3. In fact, one of our recent guests, uh, Rima Jafali, the um, Saudi Arabian um, racing driver, is is just about to do that process. Um, you were with Carlin at that point. What what was Carlin like? as a team back then because now obviously it's you know it's basically won everything outside of um formula one um you know we see it in the states in in, um in the lights of indycar and um you know they've got trophies filling up their factory like nobody's business what was it like when you were racing for them was it was it a slightly different operation much younger in its life cycle um i think they they were obviously very successful uh, many years before I, I joined them, you know, back to when, when Sato was racing for them. And I think w- when I joined, they just sort of moved everything uh, into Farnham, into that one mega facility. I yeah. don't know if you've been or yes. seen, a, yeah, seen it. But, um, so I think it was a sort of coming of age of Carling going from being very successful, maybe not, not scrappy around the edges, but like, it just kind of all came together and they had big investment and it looked like the real deal. So it was, um, that, that was probably the, the start of those years and, and, you know, them being successful in everything that they touch basically. And, and, but having the knowledge and the data of, you know, John Edburn and, uh, Daniel Ricardo and all, all that and, and working with the same people that work with those guys and, and then being able to give you advice to, to, to sort of, uh, match that level and, and, and go beyond uh, is was was amazing and they you know they just sort of started building their simulator and everything like that so they really were becoming like the destination I think for a young driver and I think where where everyone wanted to, to end up so that was that was um you know cool to be sort of a part of that and then sort of leading their European F3 charge in in 2013 with with, with Daniel Kvyat and Jordan King was was uh yeah it was it was like I say a good a good time um. And, and pretty successful as well. Won, won a few races, finished fifth in the championship. And then I think from that point, it was kind of like, I was a little bit at crossroads in terms of what to do. Do I keep going down the single-seater route, try and go to that GP2, or do I look at other options? I think F3 kind of, at the end of F3, once you have that education, it gives you opportunities. You know, people go to DTM, they go to Japan, they go to IndyCar, they go to, you know, up the ladder towards Formula 1, um, So or sports cars. So, um, yeah, it was a... It was it, it gave me the perfect education to to, have, to to get a professional career. Do you think um, 
do you think most sport ha- should make more of a, a thing about Carlin? I mean, I, I think for the average armchair fan who follows Formula One, they probably have never even heard of Carlin. And and you've got the likes of Trevor there, who who has brought through some of the world's greatest racing drivers and, and a lot of people who are on the F1 grid now. Do you, do you think they get the credit they deserve or do you think they're not bothered? They're just, you know, doing their thing and, and cracking on. Um, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, Trevor's just such a lovely bloke and got, you know, so much success behind him. Uh, I think he, I think he's definitely regarded as the man in the, in, in British junior motorsport and in, in terms of, uh, where to go. And, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen a few little documentaries on Sky Sports F1 where they've gone down and sort of talked about the drivers that made it to Formula One and stuff like that. So, I feel like they, yeah, they, they, they definitely get a good amount of recognition. Of, of course, the, the thing is that like, motorsport and any sport doesn't stand still. So you've got to keep repeating it year after year. And I think that's what drives Trevor and the team to, uh, to go, you know, to the next level and, and, and keep performing. And like I said, they've got a fantastic amount of uh, engineering and mechanicing staff down there and talent that just was still, were there when I was there and are still there now. And, even like you know, my number one mechanic in F three is now number one in the IndyCar team. Which so wow. it's there, there's a progression for the mechanics and the engineers as much as there is the drivers. And again, there was those guys who were washing wheels when I was there, who are now data engineers or even engineering cars in in British Formula Four. So it's it's a you know absolute like I say powerhouse, and and not just for the drivers, for everyone involved. And I think I think Trevor is pretty proud of it and i hope he is because he should be and uh certainly i think um you know they'll go down in history as being the most successful Brit, Brit, you know junior team in, in in the uk even maybe in europe and the world so uh mm. uh it's, it's, it was cool to be a part of it and win, win races for them and you know i even came back and did did a, a season for them in sports cars when they came came into sports cars in, in, in 2019 2020 so it was again cool to be back and uh and you know in the surroundings of the team and the good thing as well with them is that, you know, once I think once you're a car and driver, you're always a car and driver. So you yeah. walk back in and, you know, it's a very, very friendly environment. I think sometimes from the outside, it can seem like quite cutthroat or it's all, oh, they, they only focus on one driver, but it's really not the case at all. I think that, you know, Trevor, regardless of whether, you know, you're going to be an F1 superstar or realistically, you know, you, you, you know you're going to do a bit of racing and then go off and do a, a business career or something. I think Trevor treats everyone in exactly the same way. It has, has a sort of uh, a bit of love for everyone really. So it's, 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 that's really nice to see as well. Well, they uh, certainly progressed you and your career into sports cars. So let's uh, dive into that because you've had a very successful career in sports cars and continue to do so. But taking that first step into the sports car world, uh, talk us about talk us through that. How did that come about? It was 2014, wasn't it, where you switched to sports cars yeah. properly uh, through ELMS? Yeah, exactly. So, like I said, at the end of 2013, you know, one races in European Formula Three, finished fifth in a championship, and it was kind of like, you know, like I say, it was at Crossroads. You know, the sponsorship at the time to go to GP two was probably like one point two million. Very, very difficult to find. You know, it's an extortionate amount. Um, and we've been just, you know, in the background slightly. You know, obviously with Alan being, you know, you know, a legend of sports cars, and, and with Harry as well, we were sort of talking to a few sports cars teams and like. Uh, was speaking quite a lot with Sam Hignett at Jota um, and they'd run Ollie Turvey uh, uh, alongside their driver Simon Dolan in, in, in 2013 and Ollie was moving on to go to the World Endurance Championship and they, and they needed a, a driver so uh, we all, they organised a test for me at um, Aragon uh, Motorland 
and uh, it went really, really well. Um, really enjoyed the car. The car at the time, the Gibson the LMP2 car, is very similar to Formula 3 in terms of power-to-weight ratio. You know, it had a bit more power and a bit more weight, but actually the driving style is very similar to, to, to F3. And uh, yeah, got on, got on well with Simon. It's, you know, first time sort of like sharing a car and, 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 and working together with a teammate as much. I mean, in, in Carlin, you know, had some good teammates, like, say like Danny Kibbe, but we used to work together quite a bit, but ultimately it's all about trying to beat each other. And, um, but I, I really enjoyed that side of like sort of working with Simon. And what, one thing I realized quite quickly with, with Jota is that again, they had an incredible amount of engineering, uh, prowess and, um, they knew the car inside out, but kind of all the, all the focus really was on making the car quicker. And I'd just come from an environment where, yes, of course, the car needs to be quick, but there was a huge focus on making the driver quicker. And I was looking at Simon, who was incredible uh, a silver, you know, as a silver driver at the time. You know, he's a very successful businessman who's sort of taken that race up four or five years ago and was, was, you know, a second off, sometimes less, sometimes slightly more. Um, I think, that, well, if I can improve Simon four tenths, that's better than anything that we can do on the race car. You know, yeah. we improve the race car by two tenths. That's insane. So I tried to sort of bring in a little bit of the car in philosophy to, to, to Jota and, and, and sort of focus a bit more on the drive and having onboard cameras and going through, you know, if we were lucky at the start, we got one sort of data sheet per morning, whereas I was like, let's look at the data every session and see what we can do to improve. And uh, I think they like that. And anyway, we, you know, got on well with Simon, we managed to deal with them for 2014. And, um, it didn't get off to the best of starts. Um, we were sort of, we were doing really well at Silverstone. You know, I qualified on pole, um, sort of made a bit of an impact there. And then Simon got very unlucky in the race, got forced off, had this massive shunt. And uh, at the start of the year, we actually, um, the team had done a deal with this, this film crew. Uh, and they were going to film this documentary called Journey to the Mont. And it was going to be on Netflix. And I was kind of, at the time, it was, you know, 2014, I was like, what's Netflix? Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, where you know then you just sort of coming coming out so it's a shame it's still not on there now because i think like it would be so much easier to sort of tell people about it you can still find it on like apple and i think and youtube and stuff but i remember saying to charlotte and tell your director uh what happens if you have a really boring season <laughs> and, and and she said uh, well we just have to try and create some drama and it'll be fine but i'm sure you guys will be, be good so we started off with a pole and then a massive shunt at silverstone like broke the car off uh, luckily Simon was, was all good uh, I think then we came came back had a second at Spine and we won at Imola before before Le Mans so that was you know, a big comeback it was a good part of the story and then we went to Le Mans for the first time and that was that was an, you know an eye-opening experience to say the least I mean you know it's 250,000 people there I think 240,000 of them are on a stag do or a hen do or something <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's chaos it's like Glastonbury Festival for, for motorsport and uh I remember thinking at the time, you know, this is this is pretty cool. I mean, uh, this is what I want to be a part of. Uh, again, like I remember on the, on the scrutineering, so it's the Monday before the race. So, um, you know, sort of walked into the town and had a big scrutineering in, in, in the town centre and there's thousands and thousands of people there. And I remember getting out of the car and literally just getting swamped like 10 deep with fans that wanted autographs or something like that. And I was thinking, this isn't normal. <laughs> this is different. <laughs> this is This is different to... Of what I'm used to, and you know, you really feel like the, the, the you know, it, it's a real special race and, and, and the history. And and we went there, and we actually had a really disastrous week uh, in the testing and qualifying. We just had no pace. We had issues with the car. This thing had been bulletproof the whole season, and all of a sudden, like, couldn't string three laps together without something breaking. 
And I think, bloody hell, this is so frustrating. And then for right at the end of the qualifying, we finally got it all together and, and I put us P2. And, uh, and yeah, the rest is history, really. We went out in the race and uh, while we sort of had a bit of a setback at one point, um, we came back through the field and, and we took the lead for about two hours to go. And I think by that point, you know, no one, everyone was sort of powerless to stop us. And, uh, we went, we went on to win, which was just incredible. I mean, walking out on the, on the podium was, uh, you know, they, they let everyone from the grandstands onto the, onto the pit straight and into the podium. And it's like, uh, into the pit lane, sorry. And, uh, you're standing there like a hundred thousand people where you feel like a rock star, you know, it's just yeah, in, so- incredible. Absolutely Amazing. incredible. Amazing. And you did it twice. And you you won it you won it twice. <laughs> well yeah, I mean it, it, in twenty fourteen that was kind of a probably the that was the make or break moment, to be honest. Um and having sort of gone there and like four races into sports cars, won Le Mans in P two, that, that really sort of set my, set me up for, for what was what was to come really. And uh um you know I I finished the season with, with, with Jota and had an offer with Nissan to do their LMP1 program, which oh. I didn't know much. Yeah, you know, we didn't know much about at the time. This blows my mind. Um, this one because yeah, because, uh, th- this is really familiar to me because uh, and this is where I f- I first really became aware of you because at the time I was managing Max Chilton and he right. he f- he phoned up. He was like, "Listen, mega opportunity. We we've been contacted by Nissan. Um, it's an LMP1 seat, the GTR LM Nismo." We saw the photographs of the car. We're like, oh, what a beast. This is it. Like this, yeah. this is, this is the moment. And tell us what happened next. Oh, mate. So <laughs> do you know what? That whole experience was actually very, very good for me, even though the, obviously the on-track performance was diabolical, but um, <laughs> it was awful. Yeah. So, so I finished the season with Jason. We, we were actually, um, we were using Nissan engines. So obviously it was, yeah, Alan That's was right. straight on to, trying to get me, you know, a seat in LMP1 for the previous year, the, the next year. And, you know, Tom Christian was retiring. Everyone was telling me, oh, you know, you, you, they've already got your name written into the Audi seat and everything like that. But in reality, obviously, it's, uh, you know, that, 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 that's not how it works. But um, anyway, Nissan were very interested. And so I signed a two-year deal, like, you know, first time sort of uh, being a fully professional driver. And it was amazing. And went went to the first test um, over in America. And I was all excited and, and I didn't drive the car for the first six testing. <laughs> it was just so painful. Um, I don't. I think partly it was because I wasn't trusted. You know, they had Mark Chenet, yep. uh, Ollie, Ollie Pla, Michael Crum, um, you know, much more experienced and, and older guys. And uh, but it was partly that, and partly because the thing just kept breaking yeah. all, all the time. And it quickly, it quickly came apparent we were miles behind where we needed to be. Uh, we sort of missed the first two races and went straight to the mom. But it was still, it was still, you know, when, when the car did run, you know, I was kind of like, let's make the most of it, see where we are. I was kind of naive before, yeah, we'll, we'll get this, get this sorted, and and kind of believe sort of the numbers and what 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 the calculations are saying we're going to be the lap time for Le Mans because I think they're expecting sort of a three fifteen, which put us like three or four seconds off. But in reality, I don't think we got between below a, a three. 30 or 328 so we were sort of Miles 15 yeah. 16 seconds oh, off the pace um so and it's amazing how your horizons change because like at the one the previous year you know i was like you know we're one of the best NP 2 teams we can go and win and literally the the goal for 2015 was just to qualify for the race get within 107 percent and you know i was it doesn't matter like 
you know, if you're in the back of the grid F1 car or you're in the Mercedes, you're still pushing it to the limit. And I remember like just in qualifying, having to be gung ho just to even qualify for, yeah. for the race. Um, but we did finish, believe it or not, we did finish despite lots of, lots of issues, obviously. And, um, you know, after that, uh, most people sort of, most of the drivers kind of left the program or went and did other, other things. And we, we, we had an extensive testing program for the rest of 2015. And we actually made the car a lot better and a lot more reliable. And I think if, you know, the car never ran as it was intended with the hybrid system. We were, we were just running the front engine, front wheel drive. I mean, at Le Mans, you would pass a GT car into Arnage, like the slowest corner of the track. They would pass you on the exit, pull in before you had enough traction to then re-overtake yeah. them. It was just, yeah. you know, it, it, the car was kind of completely hamstrung from where, where it should have been. But, you know, during all, you know, I went from, like I say, the first six days, not, not driving the car at all, to doing all the testing for the, for the, for the rest of the year and being heavily involved in that development and, and fully trusted with, with, with it all. So, and I've gone from working with maybe six or seven people at Joe to working with 60 or 70 people in the Nissan. So for me as a driver, it was hugely not only like educational and, uh, and taking me to that next level as a, as a works driver, but I think it also changes the perception of you from this up and coming, yeah. you know, young gun, maybe slightly erratic, maybe, you know, um, not fully trusted to being a full factory driver. So that was uh it was an interesting time and then literally like four days before christmas they they, they pulled the plug yeah. uh on the whole program so but who knows what would happen i think 2017 was it or 20, 2016 when jota nearly won in an lp2 car yeah yeah you know so if they got the, the hybrid work in even if it was like three or four seconds off the pace if it had been reliable it could have won them yeah, on it's, a, it's, lot it's a lot of people a forget that it's a real shame because there were such high hopes for that program and you know it was such well, a big what option. happened to the car oh god knows where it is now uh, well i think one of them i think one of them is in the, the mom museum i'm not quite, quite sure why but one of them is <laughs> i remember seeing a, a very sad photo i think of most of the rest of the parts and spares all getting crushed. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing because, like, this, you know, you have this thing that, you know, is just, like, treated better than, than you know, anything in the world. And then all of a sudden, it's just straight in the crusher. I do remember seeing that photo a few, <sighs> a few years later. But, yeah, it was, uh, it, like I say, it was, luckily for me, you know, I, I was also still racing with Jota in the European Le Mans series, you know, with Simon and Steve Albuquerque. So I still had competitive racing. It wasn't like all my eggs were just in that one basket, yeah. but uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a tough time, but uh, on the track, but actually I think, like I say, it, 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 it really helped my career in terms of taking me from a up and coming driver to a factory driver. And, and, and I think it had, you know, without the Nissan, I'm not hundred percent sure whether the next programs would have, would have the factory programs would necessarily have followed. So, so yeah. it was good. And, and you can't say no to an opportunity like that, can you, regardless no. if, 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 it, if it takes off or not? No, and kind of Adam, Adam was like, well, I've heard a rumour that it's front-ending, but let's hope, let's hope it's not, let's hope it's conventional. <laughs> then, we saw, <laughs> then we saw those spy shots from Kota, I think it was, thinking, what the hell is that? Oh. But, uh, but yeah, it was, they, there's so many stories from there, but uh, yeah. So it was it was fun. There'll be a there'll be a whole documentary on that probably one day yeah. maybe maybe that's when you needed Netflix probably that they could have made that a proper drama film yeah. uh, program. But it's, yeah, hundred percent. But as much as like Darren Darren Cox was sort of you know going for this crazy uh, risk taking strategy, you know he also took risks on the drivers as well. So I, I am still very thankful yeah. for that opportunity. You know, so it was uh, yeah, it was cool. 
Well, it really did. Uh, that wasn't the end, thankfully, because no. you, you, you carried on doing sports cars. And as we mentioned earlier, you did win Le Mans again uh, with um, uh, Aston Martin, obviously, most recently in, in 2020, further down in the, in the GT category. But I think in the interest of time, we might just fast forward ever so slightly because you also made the move then to America and IMSA. Sure. So yeah. um, what's it like driving over there compared to... Europe and then how did that move obviously still sports car racing but how did that switch come yeah so America's great absolutely love it it's sort of uh, it's, it's it's really fun over there tracks are absolutely mental uh, pretty old school you know not much runoff um, but really really cool not most of them haven't changed a lot from, from back in the in the 60s and 70s um, and the racing's really fun as well I quite quite like how it's more of an entertainment category, shall we say, in terms of like the yellow flags and stuff. And if they get a chance to throw a yellow 10 minutes before the end, they'll bunch everyone up and, and go for a grandstand <laughs> finish. Whereas I think in the WEC and in ELMS, it's a little bit more pure, especially at Le Mans. Um, you know, you're saying about that, that's the thing. You know, we we knew it was a three-horse race from maybe four hours into the, into the race at Le Mans because the way it works with the safety cars and stuff, we were a certain amount ahead. And, and realistically, you're just not, in GT Pro, you're not going to get two minutes back on a car on pace. It's just not going to happen. So unless unless you have an issue, uh, it was kind of down to two or three horse race at that point. Um, but uh, in America, you can never be uh, you, until you cross the line. You can never be sure that a, a ra- an easy race victory is one. Well. We had the same. We had the same thing very recently. Did a high with by twenty seconds, and a yellow came at the wrong time. We didn't even come out of the pits in the lead. So um wow. it's uh it but it's it, it, it like i say it's it's good fun and you know you get to race in amazing races like the daytona 24 hours and sebring yeah. 12 hours you know huge history and it was uh it's it, it basically came about because um i was racing with four chip ganassi racing multimatic were running that program um so kind of at the end of the nissan uh time uh, alan was talking to four we kind of agreed that we were going to stay with with nissan uh, try and show some loyalty there and then they pulled the plug and sort of went back and they said oh we've got potentially a three race deal I went out to Daytona halfway through the race sat down with Multimatic and, and Ford they put like a little wooden stool in the middle of the uh, of the motorhome and I kind of came in and said I assume this is my seat then and, uh, <laughs> and they sort of grilled me for 20 minutes or so anyway I did the, did the deal just to be like the third driver for, for, for the first three races in the mom and that turned into a full time deal which turned into a four year deal with, with Multimatic and then Multimatic were running the uh, the Mazda program over in the States they build the, build the car do the dampers everything like that and they needed a driver for 2018 onwards so that's how I got into there and then that kind of filled in nicely as the Ford program ended at the end of 2019 to so go full time in America obviously I got that really nice third driver role with Aston, which turned into another Le Mans win, which was incredible. Um, but my main focus really ever since, uh, full program ended was, uh, was on, was on America. And it's, um, it's a wild ride out there. It's fun. You know, we managed to win the Sebring 12 hours, finished uh, third in Daytona, um, second again at Sebring this year. So, um, and, and won plenty of the other races as well. Um, and the big thing for us was, you know, Mazda hadn't won a race for seven years. So to get that first win for them at Watkins Glen six hours was was incredible. Um and uh there's you know it's a huge following of sports cars, you know, it's a real cult following cult following out there. And yeah, uh, absolutely it's really, really good fun. Um you know, you've got very well rounded motorsport experience. You you're a student of the sport, you you've learned all about it, you've done these activities like you mentioned with the you know, the beasting and, and you, you <laughs> you've put the hard yards in. You, you you talk articulately, you're very fit, you've got this well-rounded view. 
you you strike me as the kind of guy who would make a very good team manager or team owner. Is that on your radar? What's the long-term goal for you? Would you ever run your own team? Um, I mean, never say never. I think sports cars is coming into a very, very interesting period um, with the LMDH cars and the hypercars coming, yeah. uh, I think, in the American 23. And obviously, they're starting to come into the wet now. And um, I think it's going to, you know, there's a massive manu- manufacturer interest. You know, Porsche and Audi have just announced their programs. And, you know, Acura and Toyota, obviously, their Ferrari. It's it's going to be incredible. I'm sure there'll be many others as well. Um, so I think that's, you know, I think everyone is very excited about that. Um, so I wouldn't say I've looked at anything other than, you know, driving a car for, for, for certainly for the foreseeable future. I'm just trying to do everything I can to maximize the opportunity I have in America um, with Multimatic. And, and hopefully that will lead on to something very exciting for the future. Cause I think for the next six, seven years, sports cars is going to be absolutely prime and, you know, sort of Peugeot announcement with the, yeah, you know, cool. the level of drivers that they're, they're bringing in. It's, um, it, you know, I want to be part of that for sure. And I think the, the more I can be at the front winning races, um, that's going to stand me in good stead. So, I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I look at what Alan's done in terms of going straight out the cockpit, managing drivers, going straight into a team manager role, being just as busy as he was when he was driving. Yeah. You've got to, you know, you've got to admire that. It's incredible work ethic. Um, whether I'd want to maybe after I finish racing, go and do something else. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm honestly not, not sure. Um, you know, when I was working with Jack Manchester and the Carlin stuff, I was sort of mentoring him a little bit and I quite enjoyed all that sort of side of it. So we'll, we'll see, but I think I've still got plenty of years, uh, plenty of years to give it behind the wheel first before I think about other stuff. Well, we've got a few, we'll shortly come on to our, our final three, but a couple of quick fire questions for you. Um, Who's the best racing driver you've ever shared the track with? Ooh, um, good question. Um, Carlos Sainz Jr. is pretty pretty rapid. Yeah, nice. um, yeah. I think George. I think he's I think done George, all right, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. No, I like Kai. He's, we were teammates in 2005. He's very very fast. I mean, Jack Harvey as well was was very good uh, for me. I think George Russell was. Uh, potentially one of the, the you know the next superstar alongside Max in that F1. I haven't raced personally with George, but I know him well, and uh, he's managed by Harriet. Yeah, for me, he's classy, classy awesome. driver. Uh, one word answer is sim racing a sport. Yes. Oh. Oh. Well, yeah, people people are earning people are earning money out of it. Fair. Now, so yeah. Yeah. big money. Um, big money. You've had you've had a bit of uh, electric experience in your time, Formula E or Formula One. Um. I think Formula E is more exciting potentially in the racing yeah. wise, but I think now Formula One is uh, is is more competitive at the front. Uh, I think it's going to be we're in for a good season. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, um, should we do our final three? Let's do our final three. Go on, you kick off. Go on. So we asked this to all of our guests, Harry, just to get a little bit of variety in the answers and see what crops up. So the first one for you: What's got you excited at the moment? Um, the upcoming um, regulations in sports cars 23 and all the manufacturers and opportunities that are going to arrive. Lovely. If not doing what you're doing, being a very successful and fast racing driver, what would you be doing? Um, I think after my 48-hour military toughness thing, I'm probably not the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure, I mean, I've always 
was I've always been quite good with numbers and and quite sort of interested in the stock market and stuff like that. So maybe something in the city, something around that. I would say. Nice. Okay. And finally, what are you scared of? <laughs> um, multiple insects and reptiles and things <laughs> like that. But probably right now, uh, going bold. Oh, oh really? Is, is it is it going that way? I mean, you look like you've got a lovely full head of hair there. Mate, it's selecting reverse. Bit, oh. bit faster than I like it. You know, I was I raced in the Needle Nest this year with uh, Racing Team Turkey, and I've already said to Sally if we could, uh, as part of the deal, if he could, uh, if he could put me into a salon down there. I've heard, you know, that's the place to go. So. Just shave it <laughs> off. When he put some feet, when he put some feelers out. Yeah, uh. I think shave it off. When, it, when, when I get to that point, I am just literally just going to shave the whole lot off. I can't be doing with it. Harry's never going to get yeah, to that point because he's but got. But people a were like, "Oh, well, Jason Statham looks good with a bold head." Yeah. I was like, "Yes, it's Jason Statham." Yeah. But you know. I, I did. Sh- I shaved my head last year at, at the height of lockdown because I just couldn't deal with how much how much hair I had, not to rub it in or anything. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just getting so thick, and this the barbers had been shut for I don't know six months at this stage. It felt like, and I just literally went like that, and Is I would good? never do it again. I, I, I think some some faces suit boldness. Yeah, others do not. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can grow a, a quite a decent beard. So, so oh, you could do the opposite. Be, yeah, you don't, want to, don't want to be an upside down head. No, you don't want to be an upside down head. And the thing is, as well, like it's interesting because, like, you know, we all had our lockdown experiences, and uh, <laughs> I went the other way. I went to try and like grow it out, try and grow a man bun. You know, <laughs> just, like oh, no. you can't, you can't oh, really, no. uh, you can't really <laughs> run around with that in the in the paddock unless you're doing thousands so far. This is the only opportunity to get to see what it looks like. But two of my mates did the same thing, went the other way and shaved it. Now I kind of regret it because at least I could have seen what it looked like mm. rather than just let it fall out and go, oh no too late now yeah you could have had ownership over it then yes exactly <laughs> well or, or just the peace of mind that it might grow back whereas uh, yeah. <laughs> if you leave it too late it might not grow back you know you only have two or three haircuts left oh, you can't you Brilliant. can't have a man bun That's, those are the, the people you walk past in the street and you go oh it's <laughs> no, right. That's what I mean. So the lockdown was a perfect opportunity. Yeah, to yeah. Of, uh, yeah. To see how it how it went, but yeah, it was not not. Unfortunately, this hairline is uh, it's not suiting that. <laughs> well, what a way to finish. Um, <laughs> Harry Tingle, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, all the best um, for the rest of this year and the years to come. Um, and I'm sure we'll see you in a paddock soon. Harry Tingle, thanks for joining us on the Motormouth podcast. Awesome, thank you guys. Before you go, one final reminder to check out our sponsor, Devante Tyres. What drives you? The pursuit of excellence never ends. Enjoy the thrill of the chase with Pro Tourer Sport from Devante Tyres. Pro Tourer Sport is at one with the driver. Ask your Devante dealer about Pro Tourer Sport today. Discover Pro Tourer Sport at devante-tyres.com slash Pro Tourer Sport. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.